Very good. Me too. You want to get out your message outline. It says the return of the king. And before we start, I have an apology uh, to make because uh, this week in the weekly email, I said there would be Lord of the Rings references. And uh, as I was uh, cutting things back to sort of fit within the allotted time, uh, they fell on the cutting room floor, so to speak. So they're gone. Um, so you'll just have to deal with it, I guess. <laughs> or you could like go read the books or watch a movie or something. Um, anyways, yeah, I had a got to the point where it was just too much stuff. So the uh, silver lining is it's now shorter. Anyways, I got an amen there, huh? Yep. Matthew 24. This is a hard chapter. Uh, Matthew 24 and 25 are probably uh, the most difficult chapters in the Gospel of Matthew. And so we're going to try to go through those carefully. But today we're only looking at a, a few verses, verses 29 to verse 35. Matthew chapter 24, verses 29 to 35. So you can turn in your Bibles, look up your device, read along in the outline. But if you would turn to Matthew 24, please listen carefully as this is the Word of God. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. From the fig tree learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us the scriptures and making us your people. You've brought us to this amazing gospel to learn more about your son, Jesus. We ask this morning that you would give us the grace to understand this hard teaching. First of all, thank you that you have revealed to us these truths about the coming of our Savior. We ask that by a diligent use of the ordinary means of grace, as we study your word, that you would open our eyes to see wonderful things from this gospel. We ask that you would grip our hearts with these truths, that we would long more and more for the coming of our Lord Jesus. So by your spirit, open this gospel to us, help us to see Jesus, and as always for this, we need your grace. Give us the desire to learn from you this morning, in Jesus' name we pray, 
Amen. Amen. Not all of you will understand this chapter. Not all of you will comprehend the message or relate to its promise. Some of you won't understand it, particularly if you've never failed and are intolerant of those who have. You won't understand it if your life is hygienic as a new hospital and your soul could pass the white glove test. You won't understand it if you're a red-hot zealot who thinks God is lucky to have you on his side. You won't understand it if you dreamed of a perfect home and got it, dreamed of a perfect job and got it, dreamed of a problem-free life and got it. You won't understand it if your pillow has never known tears, your prayers have never known anguish, and your faith has never known doubt. If you are tearless and fearless and can't understand why others aren't, then this chapter is going to sound like a foreign language. Why? Because this chapter is about survival. These few pages deal about with the subject of coping with pain and adversity and trial and tribulation. These following paragraphs were not written for those who are on top of the world but for those who are trapped under one which has collapsed. So if you can relate to that, then turn to Matthew 24 and get ready for some assurance. Now, that may surprise you if you know anything about Matthew chapter 24, because you remember it as the neighborhood hangout for the end times fanatics. It's the camping ground for eschatological mathematicians and last day prophets. And it deserves that reputation. This whole section is known as the Olivet Discourse, and it's Christ's proclamation of the end times. And scholars have dedicated more than one book to this chapter to answer one question, what is Jesus saying? There are ominous phrases lurking in this chapter, wars and rumors of wars, the destroying terror, and how terrible it will be for women who are pregnant. There's eerie descriptions of the sun growing dark, the moon not giving its light, the stars falling, and the powers of heaven shaking. How do we explain it? Some feel the entire chapter is symbolic and shouldn't be interpreted literally. Others think it's a combination of comments equally applied to the destruction of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, but also to the return of Christ. Still others state the chapter has just one purpose, and that's to prepare us for the final judgment. So open your Bibles uh, once again. Look back at Matthew 24, and let's see what it says. Now, uh, for the last few weeks, we've been sort of approaching and, and coming into this uh, great passage where Jesus sets forth his teaching about the end times and the second coming. And in the very first uh, three verses of Matthew 24, particularly... Um, uh, verse 3, we see two particular questions that the disciples ask. Look there at verse 3. It says, As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? So they ask a when question and a what question. Very important to understand these two questions because Jesus is answering those two questions in all of chapter 24 and 25. 
this whole sermon is given an answer to the when question and the what question. And so we've already started with uh, chapter 24 and gone through verse uh, 28, where the Lord responds to his disciples, primarily speaking with them about things in the near term, what's going to happen in Jerusalem uh, and their lifetime and the destruction of the temple and the nation of Israel, things that most of them will actually see with their own eyes. Not all of them, uh, but most of them. But now Jesus turns directly to the issue of his second coming. And he begins to speak, and these are all the words of, of Jesus here. We're going to pick up at verse 29. We're going to hear the word of Christ about his coming. The word of Christ about his coming. It should be the first blank there in your outline. And uh, sometimes I forget to put the blanks in, but ah, they're there. So, starting at verse 29. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man and all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. So here Jesus begins to speak of his second coming. And we learn that Christians from this whole section have to carefully heed Jesus' teaching. We have to listen carefully to what Jesus says about his coming. If we're going to be watchful for his coming, we need to know what Jesus says about his coming. And we have to cultivate biblical desires and affections for his coming. And Jesus makes it clear that when he comes, you won't miss it. That you couldn't possibly miss the coming of the Son of Man. However, these are hard verses. They're among the most difficult verses in the Bible to understand outside of the book of Revelation. They've provoked a lot of debate. And the difficult words actually come right at the very beginning the very first phrase, verse 29, immediately after the tribulation of those days. Now here's the problem. Jesus has been talking about the tribulation of Jerusalem. And he's spoken about a tribulation that's going to occur in this generation. And then he says, immediately after uh, the tribulation of those days, I'm going to come again. And that's provoked lots of responses Lots of different interpretations. Liberals will pick up this passage and say, hmm, Jesus thought he was coming again right after the fall of Jerusalem, but he didn't. So he was wrong. And that's what the liberals will say. And we would disagree with them because we would argue that you can't contradict Jesus, uh, that he is the living word of God. And so we're going to cross that one off and move to the next one, which is just sort of flat-out heretics. Uh, come to the passage and say, Jesus was uh, said he was coming after the destruction of Jerusalem and the tribulation of those days, and so he must have. But since people are uncertain about it, it was secret. It was some sort of spiritual coming. That's it. And so they would argue it was the spiritual coming around 70 A.D. But what did Jesus say about the unmistakability of his coming? He says... You can't miss it. So we can cross that one off the list. 
it's clear that what Jesus is saying is not that he's coming again in a few weeks or a few months or a few years or a few decades and didn't. But that consistent with everything that he said from verse 4 on, the tribulation of the fall of Jerusalem is not equivalent to the tribulation of those days. That is, it's sort of the beginning of the tribulation. There's an initial uh, expression of this tribulation in the fall of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple. But there's a total time of trial and tribulation in between the advents, in between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ. And you may be thinking, aren't we in that in-between time? Yes, uh, we are. And so, after those days, that time, the whole time between the advents, then he will come again. So let's look at the words again. He says, look at those, uh, uh, those days, verse 29, what does he mean when he says that? Does those days refer to the destruction of Jerusalem? Is he saying that he'll come? And I'm arguing no. That those days refers to the entire period of time between the first and second coming of Christ. The whole period uh, between his first coming and his second coming. So once you understand that, if you accept that, then the word immediately doesn't give you a problem. It's no longer difficult because immediately after the first and second coming, then you're talking about the imminent return of Christ. And the imminent return of Christ is a very important doctrine for living the Christian life. Similar to what Mark just prayed for. R.A. Torrey, a preacher of the last century, said, the imminent return of our Lord is the great biblical argument for a pure, unselfish, devoted, unworldly, active life of service. Now you have to think of the context. Jesus is speaking to the disciples. We're in the last week of his life. He's on the Mount of Olives. He sort of got the disciples right there. They think things are about to get better. Of course, we know, because we have all the Bible and can look back, that things are not immediately about to get better. And they're expecting what? Well, they're expecting Jerusalem to fall, Christ to come again, and then what? Well, they get to reign with Christ. They get to judge the nations. They get to sit on thrones. That's why James and John were jockeying for position of who gets to sit at the right hand of Christ. They thought they're in for some ruling. They're in for some crowns. And now what is Jesus saying? He's saying not only is the end to be distinguished from the fall of Jerusalem, but it's in between the whole time of his first and second coming. And he says during that entire time, you guys will not be reigning in victory. And not only will you not be reigning and ruling, guess what? You'll be undergoing persecution and suffering for my sake. And I can imagine they're looking through whatever materials they have saying, that's not the plan. You know, God loves you, has a wonderful plan for your life. It doesn't mention persecution and suffering. You know, what's going on? But Jesus wants them to be very clear that the way you'll express your ministry for Jesus and your love for Jesus here on earth 
is not in sitting and judging nations now. That will happen. That will come later. But now you will suffer for my sake. He's completely changing the disciples' understanding of what they're about to face. And in so doing, he's preparing them to be faithful until he comes again. Now notice again in these verses the incredible things which accompany the coming of Christ. Just add them to the fact uh, that we've already been told in the chapter that his coming will be unmistakable. He tells us when he comes, the sky will be dark, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from the sky, and the powers of heaven will be shaken. Now those descriptions are somewhat mind-bending. You can't even begin to imagine sort of what that looks like, or what that means for the whole cosmos. But let me uh, mention two things. This language is drawn, drawn directly from the Old Testament prophets, and particularly Daniel and Ezekiel, but a number of the other prophets as well. But it's also, and I think much more importantly, and even where the prophets get it from, I think it's drawn out of the book of Genesis. The book of Genesis chapter 1. Because what are the first creations of God that were given rule over other parts of the creation? The sun, the moon, and the stars. In Genesis 1, verses 16 through 18, it says, And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day, and the lesser light to rule the night, and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. So in light of what Genesis 1 says, now what does this passage in Matthew 24 say? It's at least saying this, that when Christ comes again, the rule of the sun, the moon, and the stars is going to be set aside and displaced in order to show that all things have been put under the authority of Christ. The book of Revelations mentions this as well. You remember it tells us in the new heavens and the new earth, there is no sun because there is no need for light because the Lord will be your light. What is God doing? He's showing us the absolute reign and authority of the King Jesus. There is nothing in creation that he needs in order to reign and rule. Everything is placed under his feet, even the cycle of day and night provided by the sun and the moon. It's an awesome expression of the totality of the power and rule and sovereignty of the King, Jesus. And you can't miss it. When the sun and the moon are darkened, you won't miss it. His coming will be unmistakable. We see, of course, in verse 30, Jesus makes it clear that the sign of his coming, the sign of the coming of the Son of Man, is the coming of the Son of Man. The Son of Man's coming is the sign of his coming. It will result, we're told here, in the mourning of sinners. Mourning as in grief and loss and anguish with a U. The mourning of sinners. Sinners who haven't trusted in Jesus will mourn because they haven't embraced him, and then when he shows up, they'll realize it's too late, and so they'll mourn in grief and anguish. The Lord also describes this in the book of Revelation in chapter 6. And there it says, 
than the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful. And everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us, hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come. And who can stand? If you don't know Jesus, when he comes back, you're in trouble. This text says you'll mourn. Revelation says you'll hide. You'll be so desperate, you'll ask for the mountains to fall on you. However, we're given a contrast in our text, because in verse 31, we're told it's going to result in joy and triumph for all those who do trust in Christ, because they're going to be gathered by his angels. It alludes again to teachings of Old Testament prophets. It mentions the sounding of the trumpets so that Christ's second coming is not only going to be seen, but it's also going to be heard by everyone. So all those who are God's children will be gathered to Christ. This is another word of assurance in a time of calamity and crisis. No matter what's going on in your life, no matter how bad, how difficult, how tough it gets, God's people can be confident and secure because the Lord promises to send his ministering angels to gather up all of his people to himself. And because of that, Christians have to look for and long for his coming in accordance with his word. The great Scottish commentator Alexander McLaren, he once said, the primitive church thought a great deal more about the coming of Christ than it did about death. And I wonder, could we say that today? Could that be said about us? I wonder if we think more about the coming of Christ than we think about our own deaths, as uh, at least some of us are getting older we begin to think about death in general and our own death in particular. And I wonder if that's true of us. Do we think more about Christ's coming than our death? And I kind of doubt it. And yet the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ is something that God calls upon us to cultivate in our hearts, to have an affection for, a longing for, to gain a desire for. And that's why Jesus teaches us about it in his word. So what have we seen so far? Verse 29 and 30, he tells us that his coming will only occur after great trial and tribulation, and it'll be accompanied by a transformation of the world, a darkening of the sun and the moon and the stars. But then in verse 31, read his coming will be heard as well as seen, and it'll be a great day of triumph for his people who will be gathered to him. This is the clear teaching of our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, while all of this helps us to understand what's going to happen, answering the second question, it doesn't help us to understand when, which was the disciples' first question. So in answer to the when question, Jesus gives us a parable about his timing, the parable of Christ about his timing, verse 32. It says, from the fig tree learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. 
Now, a lot of the same lessons are carried over from the last verses to these verses. And we'll see several themes repeated. Anytime you see things repeated in the Bible, that means it's more important. The, uh, so, first of all, Jesus tells us we need to be realistic about our trials in the present day, in the here and now. But he also reminds us that at the same time, just as we're being realistic about our trials, we need to joyfully expect the glory of his coming. So there's a realism, but there's a hope. There's a determination to be realistic and be ready now, but there's a hope and a sense of be ready for what's to come at the same time. He tells us we need to be ready for his coming, and the way that we get ready for his coming is through obedience uh, to him, obedience to his word, uh, especially as a practical acknowledgement of the authority of his word in our daily life. So first off, Jesus says in these verses, uh, he shares a story, and it's a story that reminds them to be ready. He chooses a story, uh, he chooses to share the, the parable of the fig tree. It's essentially one verse. Many of the trees in Israel are evergreens, and the leaves don't change. They don't lose their leaves. They stay year-round. But the fig tree does lose its leaves in the winter, and then by the summer it's back in full leaf again. That sounds odd, full leaf. We usually say full blue. But I think with trees, it's full leaf. I hope that's what I got. And so the parable of the fig tree is used by Jesus essentially as an illustration for being watchful, for paying attention. And he's essentially using this parable to say, when these things happen, these things that I've been telling you about, you'll know that my prophecies about the fall of Jerusalem, the destruction of Israel, the destruction of the temple are coming back, and that all my words about me coming again will happen. It's going to happen, and so you have to be ready. And he's using this parable of the fig tree to tell them to be ready and to pay attention. He goes on in verse 33 to say, when all these things have appeared, he's near. He's right at the door. And what Jesus is saying, all these things are the signs he's mentioned in the first half of the chapter. And so when he says he's near, he's referring to his second coming. The point is, the very next step in this grand unfolding of God's great plan after the fulfillment of all these things will be the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. It may take a lot of time, but in terms of sequence, it's the next great event in the unfolding of God's plan. So the disciples have to be alert for the fulfillment of God's word. Their present hardships shouldn't dim their future hope. And you have to remember the disciples' situation. These are not positive words they're hearing. They're shocking. They're stunned. You know, they, they had asked, when will these things be? What, what will be the sign? And they thought everything was going to happen all at the same time and very soon. And they thought Jerusalem would be destroyed. That surely means the end of the world. That means the coming of Christ. The coming of Christ means that we're going to rule with him as kings. We're going to judge the nations. And so they're expecting to reign. They were going to reign with Christ. They were going to judge the world. They're going to wipe out the infidels. They're going to judge the Romans. It'll be a time of great triumph. And then Jesus comes and says, let me tell you, friends, 
not going to be like that. You're in for tribulation like you have never seen before. You're going to be persecuted with a greater intensity than you've ever experienced during my three years with you. They're going to kill you. They're going to banish you. They're going to exile you. They're going to do all kinds of things to you. You're going to experience tremendous hardship. And Jesus makes it clear they're about to endure incredible trials. And so you've been expecting triumph. And now Jesus is telling you to expect persecution. It's pretty depressing. But then he goes on, not just persecution. I don't just want you to expect persecution. I also want you to joyfully expect my coming. I find it very interesting. You know who preaches on these passages the most? On Revelation and Daniel and Ezekiel and Matthew 24 and 25? the persecuted church. Throughout history, and even today, anywhere where the church is persecuted, the primary emphasis of the church is on the hope of Christ. And we don't spend a lot of emphasis on that because we're not all that persecuted. We're doing just fine, thanks. But Jesus says, you will be. And when you do, the hope of my coming will be the thing that keeps you going. Because when all these things are seen and heard, then the coming of the Son of Man is near. The next great thing in the unfolding plan of God will be the coming of the Son of Man. And he doesn't want his disciples to lose hope, because even though they're not going to experience the triumph they expect now, they will experience that triumph later. It's just going to come at a different time. And so throughout this passage, throughout the entire Olivet Discourse, Jesus' concern is the disciples not confuse these, confuse these two major issues that he's addressing. First issue of this coming trial and tribulation. And the second issue of the coming of the Son of Man. Trials and tribulations are coming, you must be prepared. The Son of Man is coming, you also must be prepared. <coughs> Both demand readiness. And that's a message for us as well, isn't it? I mean, Christians have to be prepared for present trials. But we also should joyfully expect his coming. Like the disciples, we shouldn't anticipate a triumph in this age. We don't preach a health and wealth gospel. We don't say everything's going to be perfect in your life because we know just by living, that's not true. We've all had lots of non-perfect days. In fact, we've probably had very few perfect days. If you think about it, they probably weren't perfect anyway. But he says, don't lose hope. Expect my coming. Rejoice in my coming. Now, remember what he said at the end of the, the last section. He said, at the coming of the Son of Man, the tribes of the earth will do what? Verse 30, it says they will mourn. All those who are part of the tribes of the earth who have rejected the Messiah will mourn. But then he wants his disciples to understand the day of his coming for them won't be a day of mourning. It'll be a day of rejoicing, a day of vindication, a day of reunion, a day of ingathering, a day of fellowship, a great day of glory and triumph. And he says, even though you're going through these present trials now, look for the coming of the Son of Man because that will be a great, great day. 
So here and now that we have to do two things. In the present time, when trials and tribulations come our way, and uh, if no trials and tribulations have come your way, wait. Pretty safe promise to say that they will. But he says when they come, you have to be prepared to fight the fight of faith in obedience to his word. And yet at the same time, we have to be more expectant, more hopeful because of his certain coming as he promises in his word. Both these truths are absolutely essential uh, for his disciples, both then and now, in order to live the Christian life. We have to be prepared to fight the fight of faith. We must joyfully expect his glorious coming. Now Jesus goes on to remind us why in the next verse, in verse 35. And this is sort of the capstone uh, verse. I think it's the central verse for the whole chapter. And we get the word of Christ about his authority. Verse 35, the word of Christ about his authority. He says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Now in this place today, among people here today, there's usually two tendencies. Most of us generally have one or the other of these tendencies appear to be stronger in our lives. And the first one is that some of us struggle with assurance. Although we love the Lord Jesus and we read his word and we try to follow in his ways, we wrestle with this sense of our eternal security. Sort of a, am I really saved question. And this verse speaks to that sense of security when he says it's not possible for God's word to pass away, even in the most trying of times. And this verse brings comfort and security to those of us who struggle. On the other hand, there's those who have no struggle with that. I know I'm saved. Thank you. How are you? Um, and we have a tendency to complacency. You know, kind of sit back in our easy chair and rock along and not be very diligent in the commands of Scripture. And this verse reminds us, don't be misled, don't be deceived. You have to be diligent. You have to be ready. And so God, in one little verse, speaks to both of these tendencies among Christians. When Jesus says, my words will not pass away, he's calling on us to be secure. He's giving us the assurance of our salvation because we can trust his totally faithful and eternal word. But also when he says, my words will not pass away, he's calling us to be faithful in preparing, to be realistic in readiness, diligent in obedience, because his word is trustworthy and true, and he calls us to follow him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Now, the whole passage, in fact, the whole discourse, reminds us that as Christians, we must be wisely and biblically watchful for the coming of Christ. How do we do that? What does it mean? What does it look like to be watchful for Jesus? Does it mean we should be looking for signs that we should have somebody outside posted by the door in case Jesus comes back while we're inside? I don't think Jesus is really stressing signs. He's told us about things that are going to happen, but that's not the emphasis. As we, I would teach in my preaching class, it's not the main point of the passage. So what is? Verse 35. Jesus wants us to trust in his word. He's telling us what it means to be watchful. 
To be watchful, to be ready, involves believing, trusting, obeying Christ and His Word. You have to have faith in Christ and His Word. Two halves there. Faith, Christ's Word. Those are the two things you need in order to be watchful, in order to be ready. And all of our thinking about the second coming is going to be ordered by what? By our experiences? No. By our hunches? No. By the signs we see? No. But completely and totally by Christ's Word. And it's essential that if we're going to be watchful, that we be trusting, we be faithfully believing in the Word which Christ has given us here in the Scriptures. That's how a Christian prepares to be watchful for the coming of Christ. We are kept by faith in God's Word. Now Jesus' uh, words here serve as important counsel for his immediate circle of uh, disciples, for all those who are going through adversity and persecution and trials and tribulations in their immediate future. But they're no less applicable to us. We have to be ready to trust in his word even now. Because the time between the advents of Christ are still characterized by adversity and persecution and trials and tribulations. Not triumph, not ultimate rest. That's still to come. And all of us have trials to endure. And Jesus is telling us we must be ready to trust in his word even more than trusting in our senses what we see and hear during times of trial and tribulation. And I think that's a very practical word. Because when people get in a pinch, when they're in the midst of a trial, when they're in the midst of facing adversity, they tend to grasp at straws. They'll grasp at anything, any, any place that they can find help and hope. And Jesus is telling his disciples here and us, you're going to go through trials. So before you get there, you have to have faith in me and you have to anchor that faith in my word. Otherwise, you will find yourself grasping at straws. I find it interesting that John Calvin gives the same warning about the same thing in his commentary on Matthew. He says, nothing is more deadly for men who do not know which way to turn in adversity than to be deceived. And therefore, we must anchor our faith and our hope in what? In our circumstances? No, but in Christ and his word. His words are profoundly practical. All of us are going to go through deep waters at one time or another. You may be there now. And Christ is saying, anchor your hope in my word. Don't be deceived by those who will mislead you. We have to be watchful for his coming. We have to be ready not by trying to pry into the secret things of God or figure out his timing, but be watchful by being ready for his coming, and we do that by doing our Father's business, just like Jesus came to do his Father's business. We're to do our Father's business as if he were coming at any time. Now think about it. Have you ever sold a house? Some kids here probably haven't yet. But a lot of the adults have been through that. It was a fun and joyful experience, wasn't it? You put your house on the market, and I understand we have realtors here, so I'm going to be polite. Realtors can call at any time and tell you they want to come by and take a preview tour. Or they can call at any time and say, I want to bring someone by to see the house. And you want to sell the house, so you want them to bring people by. And so how do you get ready for the coming of the realtor? 
You stick your head out the window and wait for them to show up, you know, driving down the street. Oh, here comes the realtor. I see that white Camry. Quick, let's get ready. That, that, that's not going to work. Of course, I remember when we were looking for a house and going into houses where people clearly were not ready. Um, it was always better to go where they were. But how do you get ready? You're never sure when they're going to come up, so you just have to keep the house clean. 24 hours a day, seven days a week, you keep the house clean. And that's what Jesus is saying. He's not saying stick your head out the window and watch for me to come. He's telling us to keep the house clean. That's how you get ready for the coming of the Son of Man. And here in verse 35, we have this glorious statement about the permanent authority of Christ's words. Jesus makes it plain. Heaven and earth will pass away. My word will never pass away. The cosmos, the universe, the sky, everything we know in the universe will pass away, but not his words. His words will not fail. They will come true. Indeed, he's saying that his words are more certain than the earth we're standing on. His words are more certain than the world beneath our feet. That's how certain his words are. And he's asking you to live that way, to live by those certain words. Yes, it's been 2,000 years, and yet it's more certain that he's coming again than the sun is going to rise tomorrow. His words are more certain than the earth beneath your feet. He speaks the truth. And the question is, will you believe him? Will you believe him? Think about that. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that and then I'll close. Let's pray together. Our Lord and our God, thank you that you've given us a king. Thank you that in this passage we see your son, who is that king. Open our eyes that we can see him as your son, our savior, our king, our Lord. Lord, we want to be able to say with our whole hearts, come Lord Jesus, come quickly. So we ask this would be a reality for us individually and as a congregation that our desire would be for the coming of our savior. But we know we're weak in our faith. We're curious about things you tell us are secrets. We neglect things that you reveal to us in your word. So help us to not make the mistake of failing to trust in the authority of Christ's word. Not only in our trusting for his coming, but our obedience to him every day. And help us, we pray, to be ready for his coming so that we might rejoice in the day of his glory. As his children, by trusting him, and knowing we can only be there by faith. So, Lord, if there's anyone among us this day who comes here not trusting in Christ, we ask by your Spirit you would draw that person to yourself by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, that they might embrace the Lord Jesus Christ as the Lord and King of their lives. And help us all to know and believe that the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Amen. Thank you.
blessing. Remind you this week to be praying for our missions team. We have 14 people in the Nassau, Bahamas. Uh, they're not on the beach resorts. They're actually in the city. They'll be doing some construction work in a VBS. Uh, Dave Dorse, Jeff Lee are leading the team. We have 14 people there, and apparently Rick Barons and Claire Gardner are posting tons of pictures on Facebook. So if you're friends with them, uh, you know, do that or friend them, and then look at them. You can see everything going on. Uh, as you've been told, uh, I go on sabbatical uh, starting on Tuesday. Uh, we are not disappearing. Uh, we will be in and out. I expect we'll be gone at least half uh, the summer. Um, but we would also appreciate uh, your prayers. I will be sending you a letter on Tuesday telling you what I expect of you while I'm gone. So you get to look forward to that. So this is a very important verse for our church. 2 Peter 3, 17 and 18. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. God bless you. I'll see you around.